perhaps one of the greatest strengths, I'd say, of the protection-centered approach or a human rights-based approach is that it does look at the problem in the round. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Today's episode was recorded as a live taping of the podcast produced in partnership with CGIAR, a global research partnership for a food secure future dedicated to transforming food, land, and water systems in a climate crisis. Global Dispatches and CGIAR are partnering on a series of episodes about the nexus between climate and security. In our conversation today, expert panelists discuss the multiple benefits of climate adaptation for disaster-related displacement. The episode kicks off with some opening remarks from Peter Lederach, co-lead CGIR Climate Security Alliance of Bioversity and SEAT. I then moderate a panel featuring Michelle Yonatani, Senior Policy Officer, Office of the Special Advisor to the High Commissioner on Climate Action at UNHCR. Sandra Rookstall, Senior Researcher, International Water Management Institute and co-lead, CGIAR Fragility, Conflict and Migration Initiative. Tasneem Siddiqui, a professor at the University of Dhaka. And Rafaela Schweiger, a Yale World Fellow at Yale University. This is the third installment of a four-part series. To view all of these episodes and more, please visit globaldispatches.org. Now here is Peter Lutterock. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to today's webinar on multiple benefits of climate adaptation for disaster-related displacement, organized by the CGR Initiative on Fragility, Conflict, and Migration. This is the third webinar in our series. The first webinar focused on the multiple benefits of climate adaptation for poverty reduction and gender equality, and the second one on multiple benefits of climate adaptation for peace building and human security. Today, we aim to discuss how climate adaptation can contribute to displacement prevention and protection. Let me provide some context. The impacts of climate change disrupt food, land and water systems and erode the resource base in many rural and increasingly urban areas. Disaster related displacement and growing fragility in weak governance environments are destabilizing communities and whole regions. On the other hand, investments in climate change adaptation have significant potential to contribute to disaster-related displacement. Despite growing recognition of this potential, national policies and international programs are not yet adapting. At the international level, various frameworks exist and provide clear guidance on linking assessments of disaster risks, displacement and climate resilience, including the Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk Reduction, the Nansen Protection Agenda, and the Global Compact on migration. They all spe specifically highlight the need to address the drivers that compel people to move as well as propose in anticipatory action, such as planned relocation in the face of rising climate risks. At the national level, promising examples can be found in Indonesia, for example, with the government of Indonesia working towards adaptive social protection for vulnerable households that connect social assistance with disaster risk reduction and climate adaptation measures. Careful design is critical for such policy progress and investment to translate into effective action that sim simultaneously promotes climate adaptation, displacement prevention and protection. Not only are climate risks and their interactions with displacement highly context specific, but differences in people's needs, constraints, and opportunities around climate adaptation should be accounted for. 
The panel today will delve into actionable pathways for targeted climate adaptation financing, especially in conflict-affected regions for displacement prevention. I'm now handing over to our moderator, Mark Leon Goldberg. Uh, thank you, Peter, and welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Mark Leon Goldberg. I am the editor of UN Dispatch and host the Global Dispatches podcast. Our conversation today is being recorded as a live taping of the podcast. Please visit globaldispatches.org to find all of our climate security episodes produced in partnership with CGIAR. Uh, today's conversation is going to focus on the multiple benefits of climate adaptation for disaster-related displacement. I will have some questions for our distinguished panelists. We will then open it up to the audience for questions. To pose a question, sim simply leave a comment wherever you are watching this live stream. And now let me introduce our panel. Michelle Yonatani is Senior Policy Officer in the Office of the Special Advisor to the High Commissioner on Climate Action at UNHCR. Sandra Ruxtol is Senior Researcher at the International Water Management Institute and co-lead of CGIAR Fragility, Conflict, and Migration Initiative. Tasneem Siddiqui is a professor at the University of Dhaka. And Rafaela Schweiger is a Yale World Fellow at Yale University. And uh, with that, let us just jump into our conversation. And Michelle, I am going to start with you. Uh, Michelle, UNHCR's mandate is to protect refugees. Historically speaking, humanitarian actors are not expected to engage in national development and adaptation policies and programs. So often protection efforts are not directly related to climate adaptation and resilience. What is the role of UNHCR and humanitarian agencies in general in this space? And how can your protection work contribute to longer term climate resilience? So thanks, Mark, great question. Um, in UNHCR, we, we look at the whole area of climate action largely from two particular angles. One is recognizing that climate is a systemic risk multiplier rather than something that acts on its, its own or is a separate issue or a separate sector for that matter. But also that um, clim climate change is a driver, not again, not on its own, but in combination with other factors that are forcing people to flee, forcing people to abandon their homes to, to find safety and assistance elsewhere. And so while um, protection, which is of course the center of our mandate, is not commonly framed as something that contributes to climate uh, change adaptation. It's certainly extremely relevant and very strongly related to the goal of, of adaptation in terms of resilience of populations. And perhaps one of the greatest strengths, I'd say, of the protection-centered approach or a human rights-based approach is that it does look at the problem in the round. It, it, by looking from a, a human rights perspective, you're looking at many different types of elements which are um, influencing people's resilience, but also, of course, their vulnerability and capacities. Um, so from, from that sort of more integrated way of looking at things already, I think we're, we're uh, really supporting what's needed to, to tackle the challenges around adaptation, not least in fragile and conflict-affected displacement situations. Also, the protection-centered approach really brings that specific attention onto the very specific vulnerabilities of different groups, whether that's women, children, uh, people with disabilities, older persons, and so on. And that's so important because, again, when we're talking about adaptation, it's critical that we're including those who are most likely to be marginalized, who have very specific needs that may not be taken into account. The other part of your question was around our sort of the, the role of humanitarian actors more generally. Um, I think that's, it's become really quite widely accepted these days that given the confluence of so many different challenges that are putting more and more pressure on an already over overstretched uh, humanitarian system, that it, it's, you know, it's again, it's not new. But there's this call, first of all, to ensure that the humanitarian development and peace building actors are all working together much better. Um, we do see that improving in some ways, but you know the fact that we're still um, talking about it so much shows you that we've still got some way to go as well, in fact, in, in making that happen. 
And um, so that we can join up different approaches across both the shorter time frames that humanitarian action is um, designed for and the longer time, long, longer time frames. Um, of course, as well, we want to try and make sure that preparedness is to be given much more focus and anticipatory action as part of what the humanitarians are already working on. Um, and remembering that many of these situations are actually protracted and chronic. So even if we're going in as, as humanitarians or using um, humanitarian funding with short timeframes, actually the longer term challenges are things that we're already picking up picking yeah. up on in terms of the gaps. And yeah. um, again, it shows the need for collaboration. Thank Thanks. you. Uh, thank you. Uh, Rafaela, you lead the migration program at the Robert Bosch Foundation, but today are with us as a Yale World Fellow working on global migration governance. Can you share with us your views on how at the policy level, the agendas of climate change adaptation and disaster related displacement interconnect? Has the international community managed to bring together diverse policy realms and what else is there to do? Well, thank you so much for, for having me here, Mark. And I think when we're talking about these, um, the intersection of the, of the policy areas, we're just at the beginning. Um, but we've seen a huge momentum building, at least on the policy level, and we can we will talk about more what that means for affected communities as of now, um, of bringing those policy realms together. And it's been pushed by international organizations, um, NGOs, a lot of academics in the space, um, but also some some philanthropies and and cities. So so three points where we can see that. One is we see an increasing recognition of climate change in global migration governance and migration debates. So Michelle was just um, alluding on UNHCR's work. IOM um, also has their programs um, for many years on, on the issue. And I think that the, for me, the most significant recognition was in 2018 with the Global Compact for Migration, which is the first intergovernmentally negotiated document at the UN on migration with a follow-up and review um, that recognizes the, the effects of climate change on forced displacement and migration. And the second is we see very recently an increased recognition of migration in climate change processes. So when we look at COP cover decisions over the last few years, we see migration mentioned in, um, in the preamble. COP27, as difficult as it was, was a breakthrough in terms of the recognition of um, mo human mobility, forced displacement, um, and migration overall in the loss and damage section of the Sharm el-Sheikh implementation plan, plus in the gaps identified for um, the loss and damage fund. So we might talk about what that means and whether how we move to the adaptation and, and resilience side of things, um, but that really gives way for doing that more um, more broadly and having those conversations at the highest level in, in the COP process. And the third is um, what I'm really seeing on the global level is actors emerging that bridge the gaps between the policy spaces and moving both in the climate disaster risk reduction and migration spaces. And one of them that really has emerged very powerful over the last few years is the UN's, what's now the UN Global Center for Climate Mobility, um, which um, is is shaping debates, creating new data insights, but also policy solutions in a very sensitive way of, of um, focusing on people-centered um, climate action that is focusing around people who might have to move, who want to be mobile, um, but also people who are forcibly displaced. And Last year at COP27, we for the first time had a space where people could talk about these issues with a pavilion, and there will only be um, at COP28 um, as well. Uh, thank you. Uh, Professor Siddiqui, we've heard from Rafaela just now about recent developments at the global level. How does this translate to the national policy level in countries that are affected by climate-related changes in migration patterns and displacement? Uh, specifically, can you share with us the experience of Bangladesh? Uh, you'll need to unmute. Yes, of course I can. I think uh, it fits in very well with Rafaela, what she said, that if you think of Bangladesh, Bangladesh is one of the most, you know, 
vulnerable country to climate change as well as natural disasters and uh, so on. So in that scenario, if you see Bangladesh is for, in the forefront of managing disaster, and that is where, you know, reducing the death toll and everything, it has done very good. Then if you come to <clears throat> climate change in the adaptation literature, as well as if you think of loss and damage, that's where Bangladesh's voice is very strong. Again, you, you come to Global Compact, uh, GFMD, and other forums, you will see it is Bangladeshi Prime Minister who first talked about this whole uh, compact on migration. So you see Bangladesh is very much present when it comes to climate change, disaster, and other things. But then, even within Bangladesh, the whole discourse of each discipline acted in cycle silo so loss and damage and adaptation will not deal with disaster management and then again migration in general the ministry wouldn't deal with climate change in that scenario i think for the first time from 2015 when ministry of disaster started planning to develop a strategy to manage internal displacement that's where for the first time this whole uh, climate change discourse, as well as uh, uh, disaster discourse, were brought into the same framework. And under that framework, keeping Nansen uh, initiative, keeping UN guideline on intern, uh, principles on internal displacement, Sendai framework, as well as certain components of compact was put together in a document that is, you know, uh, started the process in 2015, but ended in 2021. And now that document actually has 27 ministries working together in the, to implement the national strategy. And the action plan that followed is also very much trying to incorporate all these disciplines, all these ministries together. In that scenario, there are again problems. Although now this uh, understanding is there, certain policy and actions are there, but there are problems. Even if I first start with implementation framework, you see donor community would like to deal with uh, you know, climate change with environment ministry, mm. when it disaster with disaster ministry. Then again, disaster displacement, which is a right-based document, they would like to treat it, you know, they wouldn't touch it, development partners, because they say with disaster ministry, we work on humanitarian issues, mm. not on right-based environmental issues. So still there are challenges and problems in implementing the action plan. So Thank Bangladesh is at that stage. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's move to Sandra now. Uh, Sandra, CGIR has recently launched a new initiative on fragility, conflict, and migration, FCM. It seeks to leverage climate evidence and research from land, water, and food systems for humanitarian crisis anticipation and response. Can you explain the role of research to align climate adaptation with addressing displacement risk and protecting those on the move? Thank you, Mark. Um, you know, when I think of a question like this and, and when asked about the role of research, I think I, I get a little nervous because I don't want anyone to think that we're sitting in an ivory tower, okay? As researchers, we're really translators as much as anything else. This is especially true for researchers at the CGIAR. We do research for development. So we're judged based on the success, uh, or our, our success rather is, is judged based on the application uptake and impact of the research that we're doing. So a lot of concepts have just been explained in, in different contexts within the international community, within a, a, a national uh, government and so on, that it's, I think our job as researchers to try to help uh, define what these mean in a problem space and what are the options for intervention. A couple areas that we're focusing on in the FCM portfolio that really come across all the different cases in the more than 20 countries we're working in just this year. The concepts being vulnerability, 
exposure and capacity. So when we think about human and biophysical systems that exist in a crisis situation, and when dealing with climate change or addressing displacement risk and protecting people on the move, as you said, vulnerability, exposure, and capacity will take on different forms in each situation. And these characteristics are relevant across considerations, across the spectrum of intervention, okay, from humanitarian to, to development and, and everything in between. So these, these concepts also take on different forms when they're embedded within larger food, land, and water systems. So as researchers, it is our job really to work closely with partners, with governments, with international organizations, such as those uh, who are represented here on the panel, and also with local communities to understand what these concepts really mean on a day-to-day -day basis, and therefore what they mean when governing a larger system of food, land, and water, and what this means for development and climate strategy in general. This is a scale that we have to work along in order to design real interventions that can be effective. So our research is about that application. It's about making sense of that and informing uh, policies, investments, programs uh, across the spectrum for UNHCR, with WFP, FAO, with national governments such as Bangladesh, and like I said, with local governments and civil society organizations. So we really need to consider disaster risk prevention and management, as well as climate adaptation interventions as um, a, a body of intervention that, that needs to be scaled to address these vulnerabilities, the exposure to risks, and the capacities um, that are required in order to build resilience in these situations. So, um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so just a reminder to the audience, uh, we will have time for audience questions at the end. Please do get your questions in by simply leaving a comment wherever you are watching the live stream. Uh, and Michelle, I'm going to turn back to you. UNHCR has been advocating for more inclusion of concerns of refugees and IDPs in climate adaptation policies and climate finance. What are some of the concrete successes you can report and what are some of the challenges? Hmm. Thanks. Yes. So what we observe in terms of the national adaptation plans, the key instruments, the national adaptation plans, as well as the national term commitments, is that while some of them are indeed including um, reference to displaced populations, still it's like most of them are not. And even if they are mentioning it, there is there are there is a real lack of um, concrete provisions being included in those plans that can be then implemented and take forward and really make a difference to the people we're talking about and we're particularly concerned with. Um, and there's always a particular challenge as well for those who are non-nationals on on the territory, if you like, so refugees as well as as some of the some migrants. So getting making sure that they're also included when they're being excluded frequently, even if they've been in the country for many years, for example, that that's quite a challenge and it's ongoing. But a recent success, would, an example would be some work that we supported uh, by the um, Intergovernmental Authority on Development, which is a block of um, some eight uh, African countries in the Horn of Africa, the Nile Valley, and the African Great Lakes region. So they've put together and just recently had this endorsed at ministerial level, a new regional adaptation strategy and that's very interesting because through promoting regional cooperation on transboundary issues it brings a whole other element that sometimes is also missed in national plans including around population movements displacement across borders then on um, the question on finance um, in terms of concrete successes on adaptation I, uh, we're, we're more at the stage, quite frankly, right now, of seriously advocating for much more adaptation finance to be reaching communities and countries who need it the most. And that's something that we see as a particular, a particularly acute gap, in, again, in fragile and conflict-affected countries where most refugees and IDPs are coming from or living in today. And so um, this is something we continue to advocate on, whereas the success, if you like, would be coming out or promised at least out of all of the uh, negotiations discussions of this transitional committee on that has been mandated by the COP to develop recommendations 
to operationalize a loss and damage fund and funding arrangements. So some of you may have been following that. It was even picked up in the media somewhat that they did manage to land after quite tense discussions on, on these recommendations. From our point of view on human mobility issues, it's a quite good news in that at least these concerns are very much on the table and being recognized. Now we're all just holding our, holding our breath, keeping our fingers crossed that these recommendations will actually be endorsed so that we can keep moving forwards. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, Rafaela, beyond engaging at the international policy level, you've also been an advocate for more direct support to local organizations and communities, including those working on migration and refugee response. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about why this is important and maybe share an example or two of how this can be done? No, happy to. And I think that is in that whole debate around um, how, how dramatic the situation is for many, also giving giving a lot of hope, at least in, in the work um, that I'm doing. And I, if you briefly look at the numbers, um, in 2022, only 1.2% of the billions of dollars in humanitarian aid that was flowing was going to local actors of any kind, cities, um, local NGOs and others. And there has been a grant, grant bargain which agreed to 25% of that funding going to local actors. So we are far, far, far away from that. And why do I think is it, it's important? Um, local communities often know way better about their needs, their adaptation journeys um, and we've seen that during COVID that um, in times when a lot of international actors um, couldn't enter the country that uh, both in the in the refugee space but also um, beyond many actors helped themselves started working through their own organization so there's a bunch of work being done around that but then it's also more cost effective and um, the sustainability of many projects um, is 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 much better because people own um, really what they're doing. So there's a good argument behind doing that. And I want to give you one key example of work that, that we've been involved in, which is um, a partnership with the Mayor's Migration Council, which is you know doing a lot of work around city diplomacy and global migration, but also climate debates. Um, and they have set up a global cities fund, and we worked with them to set up a chapter on inclusive climate action. And that through that me mechanism, we and other philanthropic donors at this point channel funding directly to cities. Why cities? Because cities, when it comes to climate adaptation, climate migration, are often very, very affected, have very limited resources to really deal with um, the, the, the harsh effects of the climate crisis of the many people moving, but also the people who are um, displaced within the cities and who have to relocate. And just giving you a few examples of, of how these projects um, and initiatives look like. So in Hargeza, in Somaliland, the, um, the municipality is working hand in hand with internally displaced communities on um, in very flood prone areas to relocate them to safer areas. That's one piece, but then also helping them to provide um, them with land ownership so they can stay, they can grow their their own food and they have some sort of income. Or Monrovia is working on, you know, flooding and coastal erosion by planting mangrove um, trees, creating spaces around the city, offering green jobs to migrants and refugees who come to the city. So there's a lot that can be done with not so much money that is really owned by the community and that's continued by the community. Thank you. Uh Professor Siddiqui, uh, at the policy level, the Bangladesh experience presents a good example of good practice. Uh, but clearly the challenge lies in implementation and bringing the different parts of the government together to collaborate and leveraging the many existing civil society efforts. What are some practical examples of where this may already be happening? You are very right. Uh, when it comes to implementation, that's where you see all kinds of challenges. But I would say there are some areas now we are seeing, you know, multi-stakeholder co collaboration. Like if, if we talk about this new initiative, which I would say started with the dream of uh, Dr. Silimul Haq, who just left us a few uh, 
you know, days, weeks ago. So it's uh, very much creating uh, new cities inclusive to migrants. So that's a civil society kind of initiative. And then later you see mayor's office of Khulna, Rajshahi and other places. They have taken this whole issue for implementing, creating space for migrants from climate affected areas who are coming new to different urban locations. So along you know, with the uh, city mayors, government functionaries, uh, you do see different ministries participating in such projects. So these are, this is a very good example, I would say, where uh, multi-stakeholders, including the civil society, they are participating in implementing one of the major component of national strategy on internal displacement, making cities safe and sustainable for the climate-induced, disaster-induced new migrants. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Sandra, what are some of the concrete ways CGIR works with humanitarian actors to leverage uh, CGIR's research on land, water, and food systems in displacement and refugee contexts? Can you provide some tangible examples from the ongoing initiative on fragility, conflict, and migration, which you lead? Sure, thank you, Mark. Um, so to key off of what others, and some of these really inspiring examples that others have provided about um, the different types of humanitarian actors, big international UN agencies, national local governments, and local organizations, we're doing our best to work across this spectrum. Of course, it takes quite some time to set up these types of partnerships, but to give a flavor of some of the things we're working on together this year, because we just kicked off the, the initiative this year, um, in Jordan, Nigeria, Ethiopia, and Pakistan, we're working with national and local government agencies and also uh, WFP and UNHCR on a long, and a, you know, several local organizations, including uh, refugee camp associations and things of that nature and, and public service providers to analyze water and climate vulnerabilities that compound and persist in communities that are hosting displaced persons. So we haven't really spoken very much so far about hosting communities, but really um, going the spectrum of those who are displaced and those who, and the communities that are receiving and hosting those displaced persons. So the research looking at the vulnerabilities in those communities, including uh, all those demographics. So together we're analyzing human and biophysical risks, um, developing disaster risk management and adaptation strategies, as well as natural resource governance plans, and we're working together to assess green and gray infrastructure and social protection options to deal with these vulnerabilities um, that uh, the community and, and these local agencies are identifying. So the needs in this area of host communities is really quite broad and, and a growing area of work, I would say. So uh, another example being with uh, the Somali regional government in Ethiopia, we are also working with UNHCR and WFP conducting hydrological and environmental assessments to inform uh, local government early warning and early action strategies. The local government has um, been affected by drought and flood repeatedly. This is leading not just, I mean, this is leading to secondary displacement right now, actually, due to floods in the refugee camp areas in Melkadita. So these stakeholders have determined the need to better incorporate water issues into their early action plans. So we're working together to apply the science to support those decision-making systems. Um, and another example I wanted to provide uh, is in, in camps and in host communities, as I mentioned, we're looking a lot at how local stakeholders, um, uh, livelihoods, uh, strategies can be developed using resource recovery and reuse strategies. Um, this is helping to uh, reduce, hopefully, aid dependence, increase income, improve food security uh, in hosting areas. Again, this is not just in the camps, but also in the surrounding neighborhoods. And um, we're looking at, at how, to, how to bundle these types of solutions with uh, nature-based interventions to improve environmental health and to reduce disaster risk. So these are some of the examples of, about the very specific partnerships and intervention. Of course, there's a lot of global strategy that several people have already spoken about that we're helping to inform. 
but I think these local examples are really helping us bring these global strategies down to the communities, which is quite exciting. So back Th to you. Thank you. Uh, and uh, Michelle, we're going to turn back to you. During the African Climate Summit, UNHCR brought the COP28 presidency team director to a refugee camp in Kenya. Can you tell us about this experience and other efforts to assure the representation of refugees and IDPs in forums like COP28, which starts in just a couple of weeks? Sure. I mean, um, as, as the colleagues from CJR have been saying, you know, the importance of evidence as a base for advocacy is really, really important, but just as important to, to reach decision makers, those in influential positions, of course, is also um, so facilitating their own personal witness and experience of what we're actually talking about. So that was what was behind this visit on the on the fringes of, of the um, Africa Climate Week and the summit. Um, the Assistant High Commissioner for Operations, Mr. Ralph Mazu, accompanied the Director General, and the, he's the Special Representative of COP28, Ambassador Majid Al-Sawaidi, on this field visit to the Dada refugee complex, which is basically the biggest refugee complex in Africa. And it was powerful. So while he was there, he had the chance away from the crowds to actually go into some of the shelters to speak with families, with women directly in, in the camp, in the complex. And, and he apparently, from those who were accompanying him in person, he was really very moved by, by the experience. Um, he, in his many quotes that he gave afterwards, he talked about how it had really highlighted for him the urgent and interconnected challenges that people who are being displaced, that refugees are facing, where conflict and drought and floods and all of these things are mixing together as drivers over time of, of, of their vulnerability and their displacement. Um, as he said, he'd heard from refugees and host communities in Dadaab. And this was a stark reminder, quote, of why we must continue to drive equitable and just climate action that leaves no one behind. And, and he also made a comment that he'd learned more from that one visit than he had in all the meetings he'd attended over the last year. Mm. So we were very happy with that outcome. And indeed, um, the COP presidency have made inclusion and front, the voices of frontline communities as one of the cross-cutting thematics that they are pushing across the entire COP. And and we are doing our part to to support them through our own, of course, prioritization of that as well as a, as a key. You know, we're often asked, like, what what's a success indicator for the COP? For us, this inclusion point is, is a huge part of what would count as a successful COP. But, but that's not something that we're doing alone as UNHCR. It's very much a partner effort. And UNHCR itself has also mobilized a network of refugees and displaced people who are taking climate action themselves. So not just people who are in vulnerable situations, but have capacities and should be given much more support than they're getting today. So those um, refugees and IDPs are actually accredited as part of the UNHCR delegation, they're badged by us. And we're doing everything we can to place them in key events across the COP to give them a chance to be heard, including the big one, which is on this relief, uh, relief recovery and peace day, which is for the first time with this humanitarian uh, peace security type themes coming into the COP in an official day dedicated to it. So they'll be going to have on that day one of the one of the signature events of the presidency focused on human mobility, where we're making uh, panels that are made up of refugee and migrant voices themselves, of governments, including both the the least developed countries and the SIDS as those on the front lines, um, and including indeed one speaker who's coming from, from Somalia. She's the director of the National Commission for Refugees and IDPs, and in fact, has been an, an IDP herself in her past. Mm. So we're bringing that experience all alongside the High Commissioner uh, for Refugees and the new uh, Director General for IOM. So we're hoping that this, this, this is unprecedented, by the way, this level of profile, this huge event, very exciting. So well, it's definitely been given. A we're, we're looking forward to it. Thanks. Thank you. Um, Rafaela, over to you. Uh, what role do you think COP28 plays for displaced populations and migrants? Can the discussions on loss and damage, including negotiations on the new loss and damage fund, result in more attention and resources for communities that face the risk of climate-related displacement? So I think... The first thing is it's about delivering. 
um, when it comes to the commitments, when it comes to the finances. And just to build on what, what Michelle said, um, this year at COP, we will have about 50 youth delegates from all parts of the world who are people from affected communities, either um, having a, having experienced um, displacement themselves or are living in areas where there are um, islands, uh, island states will be at top and really pushing the debate. And, and if you have been in the room with some of those youth leaders uh, speaking to heads of state, speaking to director generals of, of agencies, um, they can really push the needle because they um, speak very differently than we all do here on on this um, on on this um, uh, session here today, um, uh, calling out uh, what's not functioning. So it's it's delivering, it's providing the resources and getting those resources to those affected communities and setting up the mechanism um, properly. Um, the second is adaptation. Um, preventing loss and damage. And, and that's a, that's a whole new debate also in the top process. And I think everyone there can really um, you know, push on this agenda and really work out what that means. And the third point I really um, want to make, and I think that is also crucial for the communities at the end of the day, is we see so many new initiatives, um, people who have been working in that field for, for, for a very long time, um, uh, doing their thing really good, but we need to build new alliances, we need to go bigger, we need to work across um, sectors, we need to build new partnerships, we need to test out new funding mechanisms, and that can be done um, with you know, governments, uh, with the UN system, but also all the non-governmental partners can play a really, really important part in this, in being bolder about which alliances you're, you're building and we are entering in that space. Uh, thank you. Uh, and Professor Siddiqui, we're going to go back to you. Uh, what is Bangladesh's position going into COP28? And what would you like to see come out of it? Uh, which areas will receive your closest attention? Bangladesh is very much interested in, I would say, this whole adaptation and that adaptation funding and, uh, you know, uh, bringing in... Uh, resources to Bangladesh, that is there. And what I would like to see, if you ask me, I would say I would first like to see more clarity on this whole issue of loss and damage and bringing migration and displacement into loss and damage, whether we are losing this whole issue of migration as one of the climate change adaptation tool. So within the adaptation framework, migration, livelihood migration, migration to, you know, short-term seasonal migrations, all these are treated as one of the adaptation tools to those who have been affected. So they migrate sometimes uh, to make in-situ in adaptation of the families by sending their remittances. So all these aspects, how we are dealing, because when you talk about loss and damage, loss and damage mostly deals with beyond adaptation, then we don't want to lose this whole potential of migration as an adaptation tool. So we need more clarity. And then again, second, I would say, I would like to see this whole uh, discourse on green trans, uh, you know, transition, and then many other uh, sort of uh, climate related programs to match with the disaster-related uh, interventions. And, and again, disaster-related intervention, not only in the context of uh, uh, protection, more on prevention, and this whole issue of durable solution. Durable solution to be there This uh, in, in this uh, climate change, migration, displacement discourse, and where, you know, all three types of possibilities of durable solutions are discussed, look, you know, uh, going back to their own place, local level integration, as well as planned relocation. So all three options are accommodated in the discussion on COP28, as well as this uh, global, you know, GFMD and COP uh, and uh, 
compact discussions, like all these needs to be combined. And of course, from this is what we would like to see. Thank you. Uh, and Sandra, what is CGIR planning to do at COP28 to raise awareness of the concerns of displaced people? Uh, what are the priorities that you see in support of fragile and conflict-affected countries, including uh, refugees and IDPs? Thanks, Mark. Uh, my mind always comes back to financing, and this has come up in several of the comments of, of the other speakers. Uh, I, I think we cannot leave this issue alone. It's ex it is certainly exciting to hear about the Recovery and Peace Day um, that will happen on December 3rd, that's finally peace is on the agenda in such an explicit way. This is a big year for that. Now, all the events that we, the CGIR, are participating in will showcase these types of collaborations that I spoke about earlier to show you know, the diverse needs and options for action and investment in this space, try to get, bring these things down to the ground and not just always about the global policy, which is important to come out of COP, but to make sure that the discussion is scaled at multiple levels. But we know with regard to fragile and conflict-affected locations, statistics show that these uh, contexts receive the least amount of climate financing. This is a huge gap. Now, these are also the areas that are most vulnerable often to climate risk. Now, in my view, there are many reasons for this. Foremost, we know that these situations receive funding for stabilization and recovery and so on and so forth. Um, and that's because of the way the donors work for a number of reasons. And these types of strategies don't always include climate resilience. Now, COP gives us an opportunity to move the needle, uh, I would hope, to get away from this idea, this old paradigm of post-conflict reconstruction and really operationalize this concept of building back better, this phrase that we love to use, but we don't always have great practical examples of. There's so much more that could be done. So, um, you know, it, it can be done, or there are a lot of reasons such as uh, risk management of the financial institutions, lack of strategy, lack of capacity uh, within fragile and conflict-affected uh, countries. Um, there can be issues such as uh, just there's not enough data of climate risk and mitigation adaptation options in these places because of security issues. And for that reason, these strategies are lacking, which means the financing is not going in that direction. And last, I just want to say when it comes to IDPs and refugees, because of their situation of fluidity, because of this sense of impermanence of the situation, it's always, it's also especially hard to finance. Uh, to bring climate finance to those contexts. So we really need to think about uh, those blockages to, to uh, financing adaptation in these types of situations. And I'm hoping with all the brains that will be together at COP28, that's a great place to facilitate these conversations. And yeah, like I said, hopefully we can move the needle. Uh, thank you. Well, huge thank you to the panelists for taking my questions. We've also gotten a number of excellent questions from the audience over the course of the last 45 minutes. Uh, Bina Desai, advisor at CGIR Focus Climate Security, has been monitoring the question feed. I'm going to pass the mic over to her to pose your questions to our panelists. Uh, Bina, over to you. Thank you very much, Mark. And indeed, we had a lot of really interesting questions. You have some you've seen popping up in the highlights. Um, but I'll go straight into um, maybe allocating some of them to the panelists individually as they were asked. Um, maybe asked, uh, starting off with you, Rafaela, we talked uh, quite a bit about having the need to have local actors in the lead. Um, and we have a question from Mr. Tarkba about this. Um, so what would you advise or have, do you have ideas about the strategies for ensuring that local authorities, and particularly in this case, local governments in developing countries and especially in Africa, can become more committed to implementing programs of climate uh, adaptation, addressing the climate uh, impacts? Thank you, Bina. And uh, thanks for, for the excellent question. I think from my perspective, the, the, the local governments that we are working with are the ones that are really, really committed, that are testing out innovative approaches around climate adaptation, about working with um, their most vulnerable communities with very, very little resources in many cases because they don't have access to those big international funds. So, um, so the, 
the work that, that we and our partners are, are doing is a lot centered around how to build a good, sustainable project that is led by the needs of the communities, involving local communities, and then working on the sustainability. And, and our data show that more than 80% of projects, once they are finalized, are continued by those cities. So, so there are mechanisms that can help um, working on that sustainability in the interest of all inhabitants of the city. Um, and then for other cities who are probably not there yet to learn from those experiences. That's great. Thank you very much. And maybe I can pass uh, on then go straight to Tasneem because you, of course, already also uh, shared some experience of working uh, with cities, with local actors. And there was a question today here from uh, Julian Higuera about your experience in Bangladesh and what advice you would give to other countries that aim to connect adaptation efforts with addressing displacement risk. And maybe you can combine that with some of the examples you've already given. Thank you. Uh, I would say to connect uh, displacement and climate change, first thing I would say to come up with a national strategy and that action plan to implement that strategy. And while developing that national strategy, don't make it a desk work or just a research. Make the whole thing people's uh, thing. Like what we did when we developed the National Strategy of Bangladesh, it was through photo voice exercise. We gave those who have been displaced the voice. So they are the one who took photographs of what are the challenges and what they would like to change in future. What do they want? And also we gave camera to policymakers and policymakers also came up with uh, their way of uh, meeting the challenges. And when both policymakers and the you know, displaced people, they sat together, a lot of uh, you know, innovative things came up. So I would say my suggestion would be to think, uh, you know, a, develop a comprehensive pol uh, strategy and in that include not only government, not only researchers, not only civil society, but also those who have been displaced and then start working from there. And of course, with that, you can uh, definitely see changes from the very beginning. Like if I share our example that in Chattogram city, the mayor already provided space to certain groups who have asked places for congregation. Uh, particularly ethnic community. And also, if you uh, think that any, uh, you know, any kind of intervention has to take into consideration the difference of age, ethnicity, gender, then disability, all these combined. So if you can bring the voices of all the, of them, then definitely you can proceed with work and you can make policymakers very proactive through such process. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much for that response. And related to that, we just had another question popping up actually in the uh, uh, via LinkedIn coming in. And this is about how we can better influence donor policies also towards localization and more investment. Um, we've already heard a few uh, you know, others like Rafaela talk about it. Maybe I can ask uh, Michelle to also look at that as a humanitarian actor. Um, you know, of course, you're also grappling with the challenge of really localizing or you're already your responses are localized. But what is it how in terms of the donor policies that can be done and how do you influence those? Yes, um, well, we have different ways of working. There's the work we're doing sort of directly implementing ourselves, but a very large portion of it is through through partners and increasingly through local partners. Indeed, so, so as part of that commitment on localization, we're trying to strengthen both the work through local partners. Uh, we're advocating for greater access, uh, direct access indeed for local organizations. Um, what else are we doing? We're also working more and more and trying to support uh, refugee or IDP or displaced person led organizations so as community-based groups themselves and making sure that they are very much part of of our programming, our planning, our strategizing, and so on. Um, does that answer the question, Lena? 
Yes, and maybe because that it was a tricky one, I mean, but we also had another tricky one for you, so I'll stick with you for a minute, if I may. Um, <clears throat> and, and this is really about what you feel the biggest challenges or maybe the biggest challenge uh, is when you think about uh, climate adaptation for disaster-related displacement. So in your, from the experience of UNHCR, if you would have to name one big challenge, what would that be? Really, I only get one. <laughs> um, I think perhaps, oh, I hate to use it, it's so cliches, but there is this major problem with silos. So if we're going to really look at adaptation, we're talking about root causes, and we're also talking about protracted situations, um, and we're talking about people, as we've discussed in this in in this uh, session together, the short and the longer term challenges when we're talking about humanitarian and longer term adaptation um, efforts. But that really requires us overcoming silos. That silos in terms of realms of expertise. We need to have displacement experts and climate change experts talking to each other much, much more. It's starting to happen much more, like the partnership with CJR is a really good example of this, but it needs to happen much more. Also in terms of financing, you know, the different pots, the different ministries, the different sections of governments or regional organizations, just working across those because displacement is something that doesn't always just fit, doesn't just fit in just a humanitarian pot, in fact. It is going into the solutions uh, issues that that Tasneem was also was also referring to, you know. So, yeah, trying to break those down through relationships, but also structurally, I think is is a huge challenge. Thanks. That's great. Yeah, well said. Thank you. Thanks, Michelle. And a, a final question, maybe because our time is running out, to everyone, but maybe kicking off with you, Sandra. So, if anyone else wants to also add to that, you're welcome. But Sandra. We have a question here on the issue of data. You mentioned it uh, right now, but um, you know, how can this concern really be addressed? And what are some of the steps that maybe CGIR also has already invested in um, in addressing this huge data gap that we do face, particularly thinking of loss and damage? Thanks, Bina. That is a good question. Um, where do we begin with data? I mean, first, there is so much data. We need to re just scope who has what and where and how, and be willing to share it. Um, data is political sometimes. We've got governments and agencies and um, telecom companies and all sorts of sources of data that are extremely important for finding solutions here. And we need to liberate ourselves from some of the limitations of sharing uh, data, in my opinion. It's not that we don't have the data, it's that in a lot of, case, in a lot of situations we don't have access to the data. So building data partnerships it will be extremely important going forward. Um, yeah, again, I, I mentioned partnerships also before. But how, how can we find a common interest to, to do this? I mean, it, I've worked, for example, which is, is, relates to some of what people have mentioned, I've worked a lot on international river basins in the past. And here's a perfect situation where you sometimes have a lot of data. It is siloed into countries or ministries or agencies or what have you. And if we can just share it, we can find a lot of uh, solutions to go forward. But politics of institutions, of, of, of countries, of communities can get in the way. This is the political economy of data. And, and so, yeah, we just need to be very aware of, the, of that and build the partnerships where we can find the champions. Thank okay. you. Thank you very much, Sandra. Unless there's any addition no. with this, thank you very much to all the, uh, the panelists and for taking the time also to answer the questions that came in. And with this, I hand over to Peter. Yes, uh, thank you so much uh, for the distinguished panelists for an extremely rich uh, discussion. Um, so I'm, I'm going to try to summarize uh, the whole discussion here. So basically, we talked about three uh, kind of topics. First, we talked about uh, conceptual understanding of climate adaptation for displacement, prevention, protection. And then we talked about uh, successes and challenges. And then at the end, uh, around uh, the contributions and preparation for the for the COP. So, so the, the first round, uh, when, we, when we talked about the conceptual understanding, uh, so Michelle um, highlighted the role of, of, of UNHCR and humanitarian agencies in, in general, which was very interesting because, of course, uh, UNHCR and humanitarian agencies normally don't work on, on climate adaptation, but she uh, rightly pointed out that uh, the advantage of a protection-centered approach 
is to look at people holistically and and so that's what what is uh, this uh, approach providing and also climate of course uh, offers an opportunity to work along the hdp nexus then then we heard from rafaela about the uh, a summary on on how this discussion is happening at that global at the policy level global policy level so she mentioned that there's uh, overall increased recognition of of climate in the migration discussion that there is uh, starting to be uh, mentioned in the UNFCCC process, and also that there's more and more actors uh, that help to bridge the gap, uh, this gap. And she meant, mentioned the UN Global Center of Climate Mobility. And then we heard from Tasneem uh, examples from Bangladesh. So Bangladesh, the most vulnerable, uh, one of the most vulnerable countries to climate change and natural disasters, is at the forefront of managing. Uh, this, this nexus. So Bangladesh uh, has now, uh, together with the 27 ministries, developed a, a national displacement strategy in a, in a very holistic manner. And, and Sandy then um, uh, concluded this, this round of, of questions uh, on the role of CGR, CGR to leverage the research on land, water and food systems. So really saying that CGR is a translator, translating evidence into practices, into policies and and, and, and finance, uh, work, working with many actors along the HDP nexus. Then the second round was, was around identifying successes and challenges. Um, so Michelle uh, talked about uh, the challenge that refugees are often not included in those discussions because they're not part of, of the country where they're currently based in. Um, but there are some successes coming out of, of regional adaptation plans where, where different countries uh, participate and also that uh, the loss and damage uh, fund discussion is, uh, is is promising in this aspect. Um, Rafaela then uh, uh, explained um, why we need more direct support to local communities. So she she gave this uh, very eye-opening number that only 1.2% of billions of US dollars were invested in, in local organizations. And, and that we saw during COVID that uh, local organizations could could actually respond effectively while while other agencies maybe were not able anymore to enter the country, and of course also much more uh, cost effectively. So that was uh, was a great example. And then uh, Tasneem uh, talked about the successes um, uh, on the ground uh, after explaining in 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 the previous round um, about the policy uh, success. And of course uh, she said it's it's very very challenging, but but there's good efforts on. Uh, multi-stakeholder efforts and there's also spaces being created for displaced people where different ministries participate and come together. Sandy then concluded that round uh, with concrete examples of le leveraging CGR land water food systems research. So she uh, talked about working with uh, national governments, UN agencies and other organizations on the vulnerability of hosting communities including the displaced uh, people, the hosted people there. And also she gave some examples of the Somalia region uh, where CGR work with, works with local uh, government on anticipatory action. The, the last round then uh, focused on the contributions to COP2028 20, 20, and the preparation. So Michelle uh, explained um, how, how they brought the um, delegation from UAE to a refugee camp in, in Kenya, and that, that was extremely eye-opening for the participants and that they learned more than, than maybe in the last few months uh, sitting in, in meetings, and that is important for, for people to experience themselves to, to, to then also be uh, effectively talking and, and uh, implementing uh, strategies, so that, that was a very good experience. Uh, Rafaela talked uh, a bit uh, about uh, loss and damage and how that's gonna going to be dealt with at COP28. And so she very much said that that really now it's about delivering and, and that there's going to be 50 youth leaders that that uh, can, can talk much uh, more effectively than we do here and, and will hopefully be able to push the needle with, with country leaders and, and agency directors. And that we need to have new alliances go bigger and more uh, effectively. Uh, Tasneem then uh, said that Bangladesh is, of course, very interested in in adaptation and adaptation funding to bring resources to Bangladesh, but uh, she personally would also like more clarity on the loss and damage fund. And then finally, uh, Sandy, Sandy talked about what we what the CGR will be doing at the at the COP, 
and that, that all events that CGI is involved uh, in will showcase the diverse needs across uh, uh, levels and that finance is, is very centered to, to what is it, what we're going to be pushing and to make sure that, that uh, climate finance can, can arrive to fragile contexts. Thank you so much. With that, um, I'm, I'm concluding here and uh, we are looking forward to welcoming you to our last webinar on November 28th at 4 p.m. CT, when we will discuss practical tools to harness multiple benefits of climate adaptation. Many thanks for joining us. Uh, many thanks to the panelists and uh, have a good day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.